I am Sam J. Jones, Flash Gordon. Okay. Oh, excuse me. That's okay. It's been a long day. <laughs> the dome always does that to me. Okay. It's good to be seen. It really is. And you're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that we will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to yet another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. The only podcast to guarantee that if you listen, you get to hear stuff. This week is episode 504. Yes, we reached the hump. We're over the hump. We are on the downside of the 500th episode. And it's another mask-mandated event here in Area 51, which means that Cam is back in his gerbil cage, and he's working at the Snickersnack Bar. Uh, so, Cam, how are yeah. we doing tonight? Well, I've got no sn- sales at the Snickersnack Bar, but I blame that on the fact that you keep the uh, gerbil cage, or as I prefer to call it, my hamster terrarium, um, locked. Well, yeah, we not had letting to anybody that. in. We had yeah, to do so. that. We have no choice. We're government mandated. Um, we've had all our shots, but I can't guarantee that anybody else has. Yeah. And actually, I'm going in for my boosters tomorrow. Um, <laughs> they're not the government mandated boosters. They're other boosters, but we're not going to talk about that. And, and they'll be fun. I'll have fun boosters. Everybody should have fun boosters, I'm thinking. So what else is going on? Oh, not a whole heck of a lot. So anyway, what I was going to say was, because you're not letting anybody in so I can make sales, I decided to start selling off the internet now. So I figured, you know, if Jeff Bezos can do it, why can't I? So I'm going to start selling all these uh, goodies I've been creating here. Um, You know, I've been having some fun here uh, in the hamster cage. It's been making me think very hamster-like. You know, so I'm thinking, you know, carrot based and all sorts of goods like lettuce and well, and I, I teeth think, are starting think, to get a little buck. Okay, I think what we can do is open up a a a, a, a Captain Cam uh, Snickersnack store on the website. There we go. If you'd like to do that. Yep. And fifty percent of the proceeds can go to letting you out of the hamster cage once a week thank you thank you that would be nice you know i do need to stretch my well i mean i got plenty of room to stretch my legs that wheel does get me quite the workout but you know, well it's not just the wheel there. it's the plastic tubes that go all over area 51 as well oh yeah yeah but i just like to get out in the sunshine and stretch my body it's you know winter it's getting to be winter here you're going to be freezing shortly so i wouldn't worry too much about that Oh, that's oh, another no. thing that I can't figure out about winter up here in 
Well, first of all, people don't realize that Area 51 is up in, in New England. Uh, they little, Everybody think it's a little known secret in Groom Lake, Nevada. No, 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 no. That's that's what the government would like you to think. It's actually up in New England. And they have these these people who like drive here from all over the place and they're called leaf peepers. Leaf, leaf. peepers. And they're gotcha. the whole thing that they do is they drive if if it's a thirty-five mile an hour speed limit, they will drive at ten miles an hour. And look at trees that were once green and are now like orange and go, ooh. Because somehow it's different than it's been every other year. Except it isn't. It's exactly the same. And we literally have a name for them up here. We call them leaf peepers. Now, if you're a peeper in any other state, I do believe that's a felony. No, it's a misdemeanor. Trust me. I know. <laughs> that's really scary. <laughs> but I had never heard that term until we moved the uh, until we had to move uh, Area 51 from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, up to New England. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, no now, you, now you do know. Leaf Peepers. I think I'm going to use that as my new name on the internet. Hello, I'm Leaf Peeper. I could spell it like Leaf Erickson or something. There you go, Tom. You do that. And I'll just call the nice, uh, nice uh, kind men in their clean white coats to come and take you away. They couldn't possibly take me away. My name is Leaf Peeper. I'm getting my All name right. legally changed. I'm going to have new cards printed up. Leaf Peeper from Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Living in Area 51. You don't have to call me that yet. Not till I get the cards printed up. And our guest doesn't have to call me that yet either. But Ed, soon, everybody will be calling me that just so that you're aware of it. Our guest tonight. Peepers, creepers, it's the peeper. There you go. See how easy that is? <laughs> just rolls trippingly off the tongue. Our guest tonight is come back for the second time. And the way things are going, there may not be a third time. And I can't say as I blame him. Uh, welcoming back author and raconteur, uh, Edward Lerner. Ed, welcome back to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Thanks. <laughs> you, you think you think you're not real sure yet and i can't say i blame you now normally we'd be talking about a work of fiction uh that you have done or that you might have done or you might have written in conjunction with with someone uh but but not this time not this time this time it is a work of kind of fact. In fact, I'm not even sure. Um, I'm I'm totally unsure 
uh, how to how to uh, categorize this book, which I'm sure pissed off the ISBN people when they said, "What kind of number are we going to put this under?" And, they could and have used an irrational number. Exactly, because this is a quite irrational book. The title of the book that we're talking about, for all the people who are seriously just scratching their head at this point, is called Troping the Light Fantastic, The Science Behind the Fiction. So it's about science fiction, but it's not about science fiction. It's about the science behind the fiction. Now, the concept itself is something new, but it's really not something new, if that makes any sense whatsoever. And it shouldn't, but it does, because it should. What? Yeah. That's there is mud. <laughs> let, 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 let me see if I, can, if I can make any sense of this whatsoever. And I'm not sure that I can, but I'm going to try. And then we're going to let you try and explain it. How's that? Sounds fair. Okay. There's there's two types of science fiction. There's good science fiction and then there's the rest of it. And if there's good science fiction, the word science has to be in it. There's there can be fantasy, there can be a uh, horror, but that's not really science fiction. That's like fantasy and that's horror. But science fiction, there's got to be a component of science in it. And the grandmasters of science fiction, the Arthur C. Clarks, the Robert Heinleins, the Frederick Poles have always known that, always knew that. And because of that, their science has always, to one degree or another, played a very big part in the, the the backbone of their story, whether you realized it as a reader or not. And sometimes if you didn't realize it, it was even better because the science was just there and it worked and you took it for granted. And in theater, it was called willing suspension of disbelief in which you sat down in a theater and you watch these people uh, and you became part of that fourth wall of that set. And you walked out of that and went, well, that was really something I've never quite seen before, as opposed to with science fiction, that was really something I've never quite read or experienced before. And science fiction did this with something called a trope. T-R-O-P-E. And I think it's time that you explained what exactly a trope is. Okay. Good in luck. The, <laughs> the term originated in literature. In the broadest sense, a trope is figurative speech. You know, if you're thinking Shakespeare it could be a metaphor like all the world's a stage. Um, it could be a simile. Here's a, a favorite simile from uh, Keith Lawmer. 
gone like the crease in $10 pants. <laughs> but a trope can be much more complex figurative language. In fantasy, you have tropes as complex as an entire medieval society repurposed into a fantasy setting. So if the literary types think of a trope as words used other than literally, a science fiction trope, I think of as science used other than literally. What makes science fiction special and what's the basis of this book, Troping the Light Fantastic, is that advancing technology can make what's not yet real into something believable. You know, moving faster than light travel and time travel and general AI beyond the realm of hand wavium. <laughs> and the cool thing about a science fiction trope, when handled by a person who has a basis in hard science is that there's enough hard science behind it, A, to make it somewhat believable, and B, to make it somewhat plausible. Beyond, and that, that makes it exciting. Beyond the fact that certain technologies and imagined science are used as tropes in science fiction. Another part of what I set out to do in this book is to show that some of these things needn't be tropes or might cease to be tropes. You know, once upon a time, the notion of people walking on the moon or Star Trek communicators uh, were tropes. And now people have walked on the moon and a Star Trek communicator is a cell phone and we all carry them around. And there's reason to think with certain restrictions on them that things like faster than light travel and time travel and AI could happen. And in the book, I like to talk about how science fiction has used these ideas, how it's abused them and how they might actually come about. Now, why? What, what made you, because there's a whole, this, this book, and this book is a hard book to read. And it's a hard That's book to read. That's what every author wants to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a I hard book. I don't, I don't know about you, Dom. The only hard part about this book was choosing which chapter to start with first because i literally went through the, the the list of chapters i'm going ooh, do i start with do i read it just front to back or do i actually bet cherry pick and i went no 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 we're going to start with the aliens part first so no this wasn't hard it was it was literally the toughest part was where does cameron going to start and he said yes where he likes to start aliens the hard <laughs> the reason it was a hard book for me to read was because as I was reading it, my mind was moving from your book to every book that I could relate what you were saying, what you were writing about, to. So I could never really stay focused on your book because I was bouncing to 20 other books during each chapter. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. and. 
Uh, with that uh, spin on it, I'll take it as a compliment. It, it, it's, it should be. And there were a lot of books that you used as, as, as cannon fodder in there that I hadn't ever read. So I'm as not only am I going, okay, I can see how this relates to uh, the, uh, the Mars series, the Burroughs Mars series. I can see how this relates to, to uh, Asimov. Uh, I've never read this Kim Stanley Robinson book. And now I've got to write that down because now I've got to read this or, or, you know, so it wasn't a smooth read for me. It was an almost a provocatory read in that sense. It's not a book I would expect people to read cover to cover in a couple of days. It's the kind of, Oh, no kidding. Well, yeah. <laughs> Where I would expect people to read a chapter or two and think about it because the next chapter or two will be on something entirely different, although still in the overall context of science and science fiction. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite, and I've got to find it. Oh, where the hell is it? Chapters is um, is the two of them that I want to talk about. The first one is is the MacGuffin. Okay. <laughs> because it's not a chapter title, so no, I know it's not a chapter yeah, title, okay. and I get that. Mm-hmm. But you you spend more more than more time than you probably should uh, exposing the 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 uh, I don't know if it's the trick of the trade or it's the the horrible terrible very bad day of the MacGuffin. Perhaps where, we should. Define MacGuffin for people. Please do. Okay. A MacGuffin is a plot device that gets everything rolling, but you may never find out what it is, and after things are rolling, you may not even care. Alfred Hitchcock coined the term. And uh, what are some examples? The uh, the Maltese Falcon in the movie <laughs> Book of the Same Name. Um, uh, yep. There was another, a, good, an, another good example is the paperwork in Casablanca that was supposed to get the uh, couple out of the country. It's supposedly the driving part of the entire story, but you rarely ever see it through the entire thing. I've heard many people refer to that as a MacGuffin. Yeah. There's a, a great uh, spy uh, caper movie called Ronin, where a whole bunch of people are running around Europe trying to get their hands on uh, a metal briefcase, and we never find out what's in it. Yeah. Well, for so, for me, what a MacGuffin does is it takes it leads you away from where 
it, it leads you to a false point, but you don't realize it until you're already there. And by the time you're there, you realize I've been looking in the wrong spot all along. And the science fiction world, hard science fiction, um, I've been watching Foundation on Apple Plus. Me too. And by the way, if you don't have Apple Plus, get it for that, if nothing else. Read the book again, but get it for that because, oh my God, that's good. It is just a feast for the eyes and a feast for the brain. And I, and I hope you agree with me on that. Uh, but it is rife with MacGuffins over and over and over again. It takes you to places you have no care about going, but you love going there. And then you go, but why? I should have been paying attention to this instead. Yes. Yes, you should have been, but you didn't. So there. Also, uh, I, I spent a lot of time uh, watching uh, the new version of Dune. And thank you, God, for making a good version of Dune, finally, even if it's only part one. Um, again, rife with MacGuffins, where taking you places you don't necessarily, where you, where you think you should be going, and you shouldn't be, because you're going someplace else instead. Okay. And well, you're the, using MacGuffin as a fake out. And I don't think in not, uh, troping, I use it that way. Not so much as a fake out, but as a, hi, you like this? Good for you. You should be looking here. <laughs> okay, I you're going to have to refresh my memory dome. Um, I know I refer to MacGuffins in one chapter of troping, but I'm drawing a blank, trying to remember where it is. I'm gonna look it up, because I'm curious. I have to, I have to find it. It was around page 70. Yeah, 75. it's, it's, it's out of my, my favorite chapter, which is the, uh, the, the uh, folks in rubbers, the, the aliens, which I, yeah. Right. Oh, scroll back. Alien yeah, aliens. aliens. Beyond, Beyond rubber, rubber suits. suits. Yes. Okay. And you, you were talking, and it, it it goes on to, it says, MacGuffins, some sci-fi deals with aliens, so alien they defy human understanding. And you give some really cool examples here. And uh, and you said that, you know, it's like unknowable things in fiction aren't new. Um, they they move they move the story forward, and you use that as basically as a, a reference to MacGuffin. Is you have these unknowable aliens who, in a lot of these cases, they move the story. Even though you never really fully understand them or know how they tick, how they eat, how they sleep, do they even eat and sleep? You know all this sort of stuff. You don't know anything. All they really do is they move the story forward, just like the Maltese Falcon moved the story forward in the Maltese Falcon. You know, it moves the story forward without you really understanding these uh, the the, the uh, blackbird or the bizarre alien creatures. And the in line, that sense, the line I remember that you make, now. Yeah, the line that you make though that that does it for me is once the story gets underway, 
you forget to wonder what the MacGuffin really is. Yes. Uh, and that's, of, that's the key. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. One of the, the books I use as an example there is Charlie Strauss's uh, Singularity Sky. And, yes. and the MacGuffin there is an artificial intelligence so advanced that no one can possibly understand them. Well, how the heck do you have a book where such a pivotal character is beyond human understanding? And the clever authorial trick is the AI has a whole bunch of human agents. And after a segue, we're dealing with the human agents and it goes back to being an excellent human story. Very cleverly done. It's, yeah. It, you're absolutely it's it's one of those where I sat there and then you also talked about uh, the moon is a harsh mistress uh, uh, Mycroft Holmes uh, uh, <laughs> which which to me is the penultimate AI story uh, oh my god uh, and you know you, you did that and then I had to stop reading I had to remember one of my favorite books in the entire world, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and Wyoming Not, <laughs> one of my favorite characters in the world. That's a great name, yes. Why not? Absolutely. It's a joke you can only say once. Right up there with uh, the prosecuting attorney on um, Perry Mason. Hamilton Burger. Oh, Ham Hamilton yes. Burger. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and, and and your book is just rife with these moments. This book is well. Let's go back to the aliens for a minute. You you talk about the different way that aliens are used as allegories allegories for the cold war you know klatu barata niktu yeah absolutely or racial parables as the monsters are due on maple street um there there are hundreds of different ways and and each time you know the way this book the way i read this book was at each point as you were pointing out well this is how it happens and when it's done properly here's how it works and i would go and it worked here and it worked here and it worked here <laughs> and i would just stop and just kind of refresh my mind with this these wonderful stories from Dare I say my childhood? There are Cut. literally hundreds of references to science fiction, novels, series, shorter stories, TV shows, movies, and how they use and abuse science. That was part of the fun and part of the time sink of uh, putting this book together. So how long did it take you to put this book together? Because just in, just in terms of fitting the right peg into the right 
whole to make the 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 metaphor work properly had to be had 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 to be one of those things where you it just kind of sat there and went how what what story is going to fit this one perfectly well the whole project didn't even begin as a book sort of randomly i wrote an article for the fact section of analog science fiction and fact and it was called say what ruminations about language communications and science fiction and it was very well received in analog it was uh, voted one of the best science articles for that year so i said what the heck i'll try another one and the obvious thing to try was to write about uh, FTL travel. And that won the reader's poll for its year. And so I started writing these articles. And every time I wrote one, I thought, well, clearly this is going to be the last one. And then a month or two later, I'd get the bug to do another one. And I wrote, I think, 16 of these things over several years. Somewhere around number 10 or 11, I decided, well, if this goes on, I'm going to have a book here. Um, but for the people listening who are analog readers, the book is not the original article stapled together. Uh, they're all updated and expanded and integrated, and there's new material. Uh, so it was a multi-year adventure, definitely. Talk for a little bit about uh, um, colony ships, the 100-year starship routine. Okay. Colony ships, also called generation ships. One of the solutions to the possibility that uh, Einstein is correct, was correct, that uh, the speed of light is an absolute speed limit for uh, physical objects. Uh, says that which I think has been proven wrong by by CERN, but that's okay. We can <laughs> we can we can debate that one, but yeah. No, CERN thought they had slightly faster than light neutrinos, and it turned out to be a loose connector. Um, but anyhow, Damn. <laughs> yeah. If uh, we can't go faster than light, and we want to go to the stars. And uh, the energy requirements to uh, accelerate anything even near the speed of light are just prodigious. It's going to take years and years and years, and maybe it would even take generations. So uh, a solution much talked about in science fiction is the generation ship, where you basically put a small town into a very large spaceship, maybe a hollowed out asteroid. And generations later, it gets to, to the destination star system. Lots of stuff can go wrong in this scenario, and science fiction covers that a lot. So, for example, um, Robert Heinlein had uh, a novel whose name just this moment escapes me, uh, where by the time the starship got to its destination, 
civilization had collapsed in the ship and no one even remembered why they were there. Um, that was a story that was uh, used many, many times. Uh, oh, gosh, and I can't think of his name. <laughs> and I've just lost the name of an author who was uh, uh, the one who wrote Dangerous Visions. Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison, who had uh, written uh, an, an, a long form uh, television series about that. And Star, just Lost. Had Star Lost and went nuts when it got produced. He was so unhappy with it. Yeah. Um, another one in that genre is um, Starship by Brian Aldiss. Yes. Or in the UK edition, it's called uh, Nonstop. The generation ship made it intact to its destination star, left its colonists behind, headed back for Earth, um, having refilled its water tanks and brought a contaminant on board, and then the civilization collapsed. And the starship returns to Earth. The people are no longer fit to live on Earth for reasons I won't go into. And uh, authorities on Earth keep trying to figure out what they can do with this poor, bizarre civilization that has uh, arisen on the spaceship. And meanwhile, some people on the spaceship are beginning to suspect that things are not as they seem. Uh, a more recent example is Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson. And it, like everything KSR writes, is really an ecological novel, and it's focused on is it even feasible to reproduce uh, an ecology that can stay functioning for generations in something as small as a ship? It's kind of a downer for those of us who kind of hope we will get to the stars. And then there's my own foray into generation ships. I had the voyage end uh, successfully, the colony form, and then the civilization collapses. <laughs> but can, the start... can anybody write a happy ending around here? No. Uh, yes, yes, eventually there is. Okay, mine is actually an arc of four novelettes, and the arc is collectively called the Paradise Quartet. It and another four-story four arc um, called the Sherlock Chronicles are together uh, one of my more recent books. And uh, kind of the mystery here is, uh, as is often the case, how do we get this collapsed civilization out of their collapse and rescue them? So anyhow, this is uh, one of the one of my favorite subgenres in science fiction. So I'm glad you uh, you brought it up, Dome. Well, it's it's becoming quite quite a uh, an interesting subject for me as as I watch. Uh, the climate su summit <laughs> devolve into stupidity yet again. 
Oh, you're getting ready to travel to another star? Well, we got to do something. And I mean, you know, we have billionaires shooting rockets to nowhere. We have governments that can't seem to control uh, their own carbon emissions, much less the amount of garbage that we're throwing around. And uh, I worry about the generations to come. I haven't, by by the time it's time for me to lift the mortal coil, uh, I'll be fine. Well, that's one I got thinking about recently, Dome, was when I was reading the, the, the chapter, about what you called, I got the long distance blues, why interstellar travel is hard. And you get into such wonderful details that I wouldn't have even, you, you've just ruined any Star Trek episode I'm ever going to watch. <laughs> so how the heck do you recycle all of that garbage after it's been created, you know? And where does it all go? And, you know, it's like all these questions. But one of the things you talk about is the fact that you're going to have to try to recycle all this stuff. You're going to, and as a larger entity right now, we're not very good about recycling and reusing. We kind of suck at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at this going, Oh, that is a serious problem. If you're going to fly to another star, even if you can do it in the, the space of one lifetime, obviously not see another chapter, but we won't get into that. Um, But is the fact that, you know, these generations are going to have to learn how to recycle and reuse. And even there's even flaws in those systems from what I have read in that chapter. So it's like, I'm looking at stuff like some of the stuff that I've watched and some of the stuff I've read, which isn't as hard a science fiction as some others. Although Star Trek didn't do too bad. It's, it's still kind of on these, these fantasy science fiction as opposed to the uh, hard science fiction, but it, it gets pretty good. But one of those things is you're looking at it going, well, where the heck, when they're finished eating, where does all this stuff go? Does yes. they, they shove it? Yeah, it and it's like... Fed and that's to tribbles, everybody knows that. Yes, yes. <laughs> no recycling <laughs> system is 100% efficient. No, anything system exactly. is 100% efficient. Right. Now, with energy, if you have energy to spare, you can do a lot. But uh, some small part of elements from whatever it is you would hope to recycle is going to escape and trace elements that you're going to critically need are going to wind up chemically bonding in weird places where you won't even know to go look for them. Yep. And the allergens will build up. And yes, the ecological complexity of building a generation ship is very challenging. Going fast would be a whole lot better. Having um, suspended animation of some sort would be a whole lot better. So here's the beauty of science fiction for me. In 1947, Arthur C. Clarke wrote this wildly fantastic novel. And in it, he had this amazing notion because he had God knows how many different college degrees at that point. 
And he said, well, you know, we're, we're going to put up these things in orbit and they're going to help us by sending pictures back down. Um, they're going to help us predict the weather. And they're going to help us uh, in terms of communicating uh, from from continent to continent. And this was in the mid 40s. And 30 years later, we started producing a satellite network that was able to begin to do those kinds of things. Not to say that science can fix everything or that science can predict everything or that science knows how to do everything. But when science fiction writers start thinking about things, especially hard science fiction writers, they may not have answers, but they start asking the right questions. What if? Yep. And the right questions are the beginning. That's always the beginning. And I got to tell you, this, this, this book, this, this book, Ed, is, is eerily reminiscent of asking all the right questions and, and talking about why we need to ask them and why it's important to have science in science fiction. Yeah, it's nice to have fantasy. Yeah, it's nice to have horror. Yeah, it's nice to have all this other stuff. But this is this is an important part of who I was growing up. This is an important part of who we are it's why we ask the questions we ask, and it's why we get some of the answers we get. And uh, it's, I gotta tell you, it's probably one of the most important books I've read in a hell of a long time. And it may not be the most fun book I've read, but wow, it made me think more than a lot of stuff I've read in a long time and I'm still reading it and I'm going to keep reading it. It's probably going to take me another two, three weeks to finish it off. Uh, but it's going to be good to do it. The book is a must have for every science fiction writer. And that was by Robert J. Sawyer, who's the a Hugo award winning author who said that. And he was right on when he said it, the book is called Troping the Light Fantastic, the science behind the fiction. And we've spent the past, oh, I don't know, half an hour or so talking with Edward M. Lerner, uh, the guy behind this book, who's uh, pretty damn smart and a lot of fun to talk to. <laughs> Ed, thank you so much for coming on again tonight, man. In my pleasure, Dome and Cameron. It's, uh, you know, you know, you're welcome here anytime. And uh, please don't be a stranger. Good to know. 
<laughs> Thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you can find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watt sauce. We have, we love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. You can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. There once was a girl from Nantucket. Good night, everybody. Hey.